Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at primarily two verses, verses 2 and 3. Uh, but before we get there, I just wanted to let everyone that know that next week, I am really excited about what we're going to be doing next week because we're going to be having what we call Testimonial Sunday. And we've done this for the past two or three years where we've had folks in our congregation share their testimonies on video, and then we, uh, Pastor Terry comes and we interview it, it, it is so good to hear the gospel, but it's also good to hear living examples that live among us and how the gospel, how Jesus himself primarily has transformed their lives. So we're going to be doing that next week. we got uh, four members of our church, Zeke. Now, Zeke gave announcements today. Was that, was that not amazing, just the way he did that? I, I put in his announcements to, to, to bring himself as Zeke the man Farnsworth, but he was too humble to do that. But Zeke the man Farnsworth will be here next week. And then we've got the Tabors. The Tabors, uh, they're going to be sharing their testimony. And then we have Colton King. He is a charter member of the church. So we've got, um, I'm looking forward to that. The week after that, we plan to jump back into the book of Exodus. Um, That's primarily what we want to do. We want to do expository preaching, and we've been in a season as we've come into January where we're doing a topical sermon, uh, sermons on the the, uh, subject of being more like Jesus. But next week, we plan to jump, I'm I'm sorry, the following week, we plan to jump back into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, where we're going to be looking at the Ten Commandments. So I'm really excited about that. And this morning, my plan is to wrap up the series that we've been in for, since January, which we've entitled More Like Jesus, where we've, where we've uh, been looking at the fact that if we are going to grow individually and if we are going to grow corporately as a church body in the way that we think and that we live, if we're going to be more like Jesus, not if we're going to become more like uh, we're not going to become gods. We're not going to become little Christs, or we're not going to have uh, gain some type of Christ consciousness. But if we're going to be transformed in the way that we live our lives, then we've got to grow in three ways, right? Are you guys tired of hearing this of how we've got to grow? This is this is kind of that that coaching thing where we have to go over it and over it because we forget about it. So we need to grow up in our relationship with God. We need to grow out in our relationship with the world. Pastor Terry talked about this last week. As ambassadors, as Christ's representatives, we need to go out and be like Christ to the world. And this morning, I plan to zero in, as we're closing up this series, on the end, what it looks like to grow in fellowship with one another. Okay, so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As we're getting started, let me ask you this question. Have you, since you've been a part of a church, have you ever thought about leaving the fellowship? Just turning your back on the church, forsaking it, or just kind of withdrawing from the church or taking a break from the church? I want you to think about that. Have you ever done that? Probably, you know, that's, that's part of my testimony is, is I took a time where I was like, I'm done with the church. 
years ago. And obviously I'm back, but there was a season where I was like, I'm leaving the church. And let me ask you this. If I gave you two uh, index cards with a pen and I said, on this one, on this index card, I want you to write down what the church is supposed to look like, what it's supposed to look like. According to the word of God, what is the church supposed to look like? And then I gave you another one and say, said, what does it actually look like? Would the two cards be identical? Now, I think we all know the answer to that, that the truth of the matter is that it is not. And so I took the time myself to do this little exercise. We might do this in, in missional communities on Thursday, since some of us are going to be playing basketball in a missional way to reach those who are not in the church. Uh, we may do this, but I want you to think about this. Uh, on the supposed to be like card, I wrote words like faithful, loving, forgiving, gentle, pure, kind, welcoming, and united. Does anyone disagree with that, that the scriptures teach that it should at least be some of these things right here? Um, and all those, though these elements that I wrote uh, are in the church, and I'm very encouraged that these elements are in the church of Christ, that I, in the broader church and in our church. Um, when I looked at what the actual church looks like, there were some words that are on this list that are not in the supposed to be list. So I made a list of those too. Hypocritical, judgmental, proud, sometimes double-minded, sometimes rude, sometimes backbiting, often divided. And those are all descriptive of me at times. Maybe you can relate to those things. Those should not be there. And one day they won't be uh, when we are freed from sinning, when we have our new bodies, when we're with Christ. But you know, the, the truth of the matter is this. We all know what we should be. It's not like we don't know that we should love one another. But then there's what we actually are. And because uh, um, of this, because we're not actually what we are, there are many who have left the church totally, never to return. Or they have decided, you know, I'm going to go be a part of the church, but I'm going to keep my distance. I'm not going to get involved, get too involved, because if I get too involved, it gets messy, and I just don't like that. And if that's you, I've got a message for you this morning. And this is going to be us, all of us at some point, if we do what we're called to do. And I've got something I want you to write down this morning if you're taking notes, and that is this. Jesus desires for his church to be a united community. Jesus, I want you to listen to this. Jesus desire, what he wants, his will, is that his church will be a united community. It, this is all throughout the scriptures, but I want to point out just one verse that's found in John 17. You know, Jesus is giving his, what's called his high priestly prayer. And this is right before he's about to go to the cross. He prays for his uh, disciples and those who are going to believe. He says, you know what he prays, the first thing he prays? He says, Father, I pray that you don't take this church out of the world. That's, that's what we talked about last week. Jesus left us here to be in the world, but he prays for our protection. And after he prays for that, in verse 21 of, of John chapter 17, he says this, I ask that they, speaking of all who would believe in him, may all be what? All may be what? One. All may be unified. All right? Just as... Father, 
are um, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. That right there is community. So you see the unity, one, that we may be one in community. Why? Why does he want that? Here's one of the reasons, so that the world may believe. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what what is Jesus doing here? He is earnestly praying for the unity of his body because one of the greatest and most attractive things to the outside world that's looking in, one of the most attractive things is when the body of Christ is united in unity. It's also one of the most repelling things when we're not, isn't it? And this is something that Paul understood. Now, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Uh, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3, and I want to read that to you. As we're we're talking about unity, it's two verses. Uh, Paul says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You see, we we know what we're supposed to be, but then there's what we actually are. And Paul is seeing this division between two women. And and knowing this, he's, he's come to someone, we don't know who it is that he wrote to, but he's come to somebody in the community of the church which shows us we need help. He says, help these ladies to work through this trial, this disagreement that they are having. He wants the saints to be united in Christ. But these two women, there's some kind of beef that's going on amongst them. And, you know, this is what this shows me. Okay, here's what Christ wants. He wants unity in community. He wants us to be a unified community. But this shows me the reality that true unity in community, you might want to write this down, true unity in community is often challenging. It is often, true unity in community is often challenging. It can be difficult. And this is something, listen church, we've talked about this before, but I've got to talk about it again because this is something that we have to grasp. This might be one of the most difficult uh, spiritual truths that the church needs to grasp because we know what we're supposed to be. We know what we're supposed to be, but when we're not, when it's not what it's supposed to be, we can be tempted to think that something is wrong with the church. Like there's something wrong. This is, the church does not exist anymore. It's supposed to be like this. It's not. Therefore, I'm going to uh, pull back and forsake it. Instead of seeking uh, to persevere and to be reconciled together in Christ. Now, there are times before I move forward, there are times we do need to withdraw ourselves from a fellowship. But I think all too often we might do it too soon in a situation like, like the passage that we have this morning. So that's what I really want to look at as we're moving forward because conflict, conflict and divisions are nothing new. Okay? They were in the church from her infancy, and this is an example of this. And we have two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche. Does anyone in here know anybody by that name? I'm not going to say anything because somebody, somebody's watching online. But 
I want you to think about something. These two ladies' names are in the Bible once. And they were an example of what disunity looks like. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. But I'm going to read these verses again because it's so short, but I don't want us to miss. There's a lot in this, these two verses. It says, I entreat, entreat, or I strongly urge, or I beg you, Euodia, and I beg you, Syntyche, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, we don't know who this true companion is, I ask you, help these women who have labored, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. There's a couple points I want to point out just right off the bat here about these two ladies. Number one is they are true disciples. We need to understand this. They, these are ladies that are real believers, genuine believers. We know this because uh, Paul says you've labored side by side. That, that Greek term for labored side by side means to toil together against opposition. It's like they've gone to war side by side with Paul in, in the gospel, for the gospel's sake. They have apparently withstood trials and persecutions. And so they've proven by their lives that they love Jesus, okay? They're disciples, they love Jesus, and they love the church. So there's no question, they're, they're, they don't seem to be nominal church members. They seem to be engaged. It also says that their names are in the book of life, which simply means that they are in the Lord. They are the real deal. They are, they are, they are seen by God as his children. And Paul addresses them as fellow laborers in the gospel. And yet, they are feuding with one another. And you know why? You know why they're feuding with one another? Because they're engaged in the church. They are active members of the church, and they are laboring side by side in community. That is partly why they are having conflict. Don't you have conflict? We, we sometimes have conflict with people we don't know. But don't we almost always have conflict with those who we know the deepest and love the dearest? And that's what's happening in here. True unity in community is challenging. challenging. And you know, in many ways, I'm a great Christian when I'm by myself. Have you ever noticed how good a Christian you are when nobody's around? I'm with the Lord and, and I'm just alone with him. It's just me and God. I'm telling him how much I love him. I'm singing, uh, if more of me, uh, more of you <laughs> means less of me. Lord, take everything, right? Yes, all of you is all I need. Take everything. I'm with the Lord. And then I walk out of my office into the real world, into the life of my family, and things just start coming down on me, right? With, with my wife, with my kids, with the church. And then the Lord's like, Really? All of you? Take everything? It's, it's, it's very challenging once I get into the real world. It's easy for me to be a Christian by myself, and, but when I get to be around other people, things get messy because of me and because of other people. We just are messy people, and there's a temptation when we have those types of things happen to want to pull back. Um, I was talking with somebody that I hadn't seen in a couple years, I hadn't seen him in a while, and I said, hey, man, how's, how's church going? And he looked me right in the eye, and he said, I'm done with that. I was like, really? I, I'm so sorry to hear that. What's, what's going on? 
He said, you, you, just have, you just don't understand all the hurt I've experienced. I have given so much to the church. I've poured into the church only to be hurt, and it's just not worth it. And so basically he was saying it's easier. He, but he said, he said this, but I'm good. I'm good. And I'm like, I bet you are. It's, it's easier not to be around people sometimes. He was saying that it's less complicated, that it's easier, and, and that he had taken his whole, his entire family was just, had, was done with church, uh, being a part of a fellowship. And what the scriptures call, calls that is forsaking the assembly. It's, it's actually disobedience to God because Jesus desires his church to have unity in community. He desires his people to be together. And, and, but it's not like I'm judging this man in a way like, I, I don't get what you're talking about. I get it. Church life is difficult, especially when you get engaged with your heart, when you get engaged with your mind, when you get engaged with your resources, when you, when you give your life away only to be hurt by what you've, what you've given away. And we know it's not supposed to be like that. We know, we know that. And so um, I love that, that uh, Paul, or that the Lord, through Paul, gives us an example of two women who love the Lord, who are having a conflict. Now, if you're like me, what you want to know, what you're thinking is, I wonder what that conflict was. I wonder what they were like not getting, uh, uh, not um, in agreeing on. And the truth of the matter is, Scripture is silent on it. We don't know what that conflict was. But you know what the thing is? is that it's interesting as I was studying this, how many commentators want to try to figure it out what that conflict was. But as you're reading the Bible, as you're studying Scripture, here's something that we, we try to teach in our church. If the Scriptures is silent on something, you can have an opinion of what you think it might be, but just hold that light loosely. Uh, we don't know what their conflict was, but we do know that it probably, most likely, was over an area where Christians can have freedom or they can have liberty. Uh, we know this because if it had been a heretical doctrinal issue, Paul would have addressed it. He would have said, tell, uh, uh, tell these ladies, Eutychus, and no, I'm sorry, not Eutychus, um, Eudia, Euodia. I practiced that a million times. Euodia, tell Euodia and Syntyche to repent of what they're teaching. In the, they, he would have said something like that, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't try, listen, he doesn't try to correct their view on whatever the matter is. That's important to understand. Um, there, uh, there are non-gospel uh, issues that we can have differences in opinion on, but we have to be careful because just like a, a heretical doctrine, doctrinal position that can destroy the church, so can a non-gospel issue. Uh, the writer of Hebrews warns about conflicts in the church. He warns about, he calls it a root of bitterness that can spring up and spread. It can cause trouble and it, and it defiles many. How much, how many people can be, you're, you're uh, angry about something, you're bitter about something, and it, we just want to share it with other people. We need to be careful. Even in non-gospel issues, those things can, can happen. And in a healthy church, we, there should be freedom for us to all have hobby horses. We should, let, me, let me explain what I mean by that, okay? We should all uh, have the freedom to have 
hobby horses. That means differing opinions that are, again, non-gospel issues, uh, different views, different interests. You know those things that just get you excited or your blood pumping? We should all have the freedom to have hobby horses as long as they don't become war horses. That, that's the problem. And a hobby horse becomes a war horse when, it, when a non-gospel issue becomes your gospel. When that's all you want to talk about. I, uh, years ago, I had a pastor share with me that uh, there was a, a, a man, a prominent member of his church that came to him. The, the man had young children, and he had been doing some research about sugar, you know, sugar, what you eat. And he had come to the conclusion that sugar is not good for you, like too much. And I would agree, too much sugar, too much of anything is not good for you. But he came to the point where it was like, no sugar. You should not have any type of sugar. And he also wanted the pastor to preach that from the front. Like, we are, we are a church that doesn't have sugar, you know, that type of thing. The pastor would not do it, so what did he do? He took his war horse and went somewhere else. That's what I'm talking about. Taking it, something that you can have that conviction, you can cut all sugar out of your diet, and that's your freedom to do that in Christ. But when we take something that's non-gospel and make it gospel and then separate it over it, we need to check ourselves. Is that the Spirit of God leading us in that? So true unity in community is challenging. Making disciples is challenging. I want, you, I want to talk to you about that for real quick. Making disciples is really challenging because to make a true disciple, you must be in one another's lives. You must be in community. And, you know, I know a, a, a lady that her mom, all her, her life, would not let her come into the kitchen and cook simply because it would have been more work to slow down and teach her how to, to do that. It, it, in the beginning, it can often be harder to disciple someone because you're teaching them something that you have been given. And they're going to mess up, just like we all have. It's not going to be as smooth as, as we want it to be oftentimes. But, that, but true discipleship takes, uh, takes time. It takes the ability to be patient with one another. It, it takes being involved with one another's lives. And so it, it's very, uh, this is something that this unity in community is very difficult uh, because of what it requires of us. And, and I want to make sure that we don't miss the point of this passage this morning. It really doesn't matter what the, the uh, subject matter is that these ladies were not, dis were not agreeing upon. Again, Paul wasn't trying to make a cookie-cutter church where we all say the same thing, look at everything the same way. Um, the church, and this is the, actually the title of my message, should have unity without uniformity. Unity without uniformity. We don't have to have the same opinions about everything on non-essential issue. I think the point of this passage, if we want to get to the point of the passage, is that we can be a church that is diverse in our opinions and our thoughts and yet still be a united community. We can, and this is what God wants. He wants us to be bonded together. He wants us to be welded together with an inseparable bond. And so the question is, what is that bond? Because there's a million things that could bond us together. But Paul has one thing 
one bond in his mind. And it's actually found in verse 2 of our passage. Let's look at it again. He says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche, here it is, to agree in the Lord. That's the bond right there, to agree in the, in the Lord. Now, um, one of the things that we encourage as you're studying the scriptures is to have good uh, translations, good versions. Um, I look at uh, the one we're, today we're using is the ESV. I also like to use the NAS and the NIV, um, sometimes the King James. Sometimes I'll even use the New Living Translation just to, to kind of get a, 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 an overview of what this passage is, is talking about. Um, the reason we do that is because Greek and Hebrew don't directly translate into English, and so different translators translate things differently to help you understand it. And this is one of those situations in verse 2. Uh, I like what the NIV says. It says, I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche, here it is, to be of the same mind in the Lord, to be of the same mind. The reason I like that uh, is because in all four chapters of Philippians, the book we're in right this morning, that phrase, or having the same mind, being of the same mind, Paul brings that out in all four chapters. And that's what this phrase right here is. Have them be of the same mind. I want to look at, real quickly, the passages in, uh, where they're found in. Chapter 1. Uh, verse 27 says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Right here, Paul is saying live lives that represent who Jesus is. It matters how we live so that whether I come to see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, look at this, standing firm in what? One spirit with what? One mind and it goes on, striving, what? Side by side. Where have we heard that? We just heard it in chapter 4. He said these ladies have been striving side by side, but you can strive side by side and, and lose the unity. So he's, this is a reminder, okay? This is how we should be living, striving side by side. And here's for what? For sugar? No, for the faith of the gospel. In other words, Paul is right here. We talked about being gospel-centered. That's what Paul is doing. He's saying everything, our unity should be in the work of Christ, in Christ and in his work. Uh, well, let's, let's look at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to come back to chapter 2 in just a minute, but let's look at chapter 3 to see where this is found. He says brothers, that word brothers means brothers or sisters. I do not consider that I have made it my own. That's important to before we move forward. Paul says I, I'm not coming to you as if I'm perfect, as if everything I'm sharing to you, I have become perfect in. He, he's being made perfect. He's saying, I'm still maturing in these things. And then he goes, but one thing. He likes to use that phrase a lot in Philippians. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of, for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. He's like, I... I know I've blown it back here or I've had successes, but I'm not going to let either of those keep me from moving forward in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 15, he says, let those of us who are what? Mature. Now, I think a, I think a good word for us would be maturing. 
I don't know that we're ever going to go, I'm, a, yeah, I'm mature. Even to say that shows you're not mature. So the, we should look at each other and go, the, the, that person is maturing. And sometimes we are more mature in certain areas, for sure. But Paul says, let all of us who, who are mature think, that word, uh, think this way, that, that phrase means to set your mind. Let those of us who are mature set your mind to this what I just shared. And if any, if anything you think otherwise, I love this. God will reveal that also to you. So this is a, just in a, another encouragement that, hey, you don't have to convince everybody of everything. Let God do that. You know, we want to we try to win people, but we can't at the end of the day be the one that convinces them. That should give us freedom in there. So just remember what Paul just said. He said, I do not consider that I have made it my own. In other words, it's a process, and as we walk with Jesus, our minds, uh, the way that we think, and the way that you think affects the way that, we, that you live. Our minds should be growing towards maturity. And so what he's basically doing with Euodia and Syntyche is he's saying this, come on, y'all, we need to grow in your maturity. You're being immature. You have different opinions, but you're, you need to grow in maturity. So what does that look like? What does it look like to grow in maturity? What does it look like to grow for us to grow in fellowship? That's what we're talking about, the in. What does it look like for us to grow in fellowship with one another? Well, that's where we're going to spend the last few minutes here in my message in, in Philippians chapter 2, because this is like one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, and it gives us the clearest picture of what the mind of Christ looks like. Beginning with verse 1, Paul says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. In other words, if you bear the fruit of being a true member of the body of Christ, if Christ is really in you, dwelling in you, if he's transforming you, verse 2, complete my joy by being of, here we go, the same what? Mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see the unity that Paul is talking about here? It's over and over. One, one, unity, community, being together. That's the desire of Christ for his his body. And then in the next three verses, he's going to show us what that looks like. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. There's a negative in verse 3. There is a positive in verse 3. And then there's a uh, what I want to call a connector in verse 3. The, the negative, what's the negative? Do nothing from selfish ambition. Don't be motivated by selfish ambition. In other words, don't use people, don't use one another to advance your cause. Don't, don't use one another to advance your kingdom. Um, I was at a, a pastor's breakfast this week, and there was a group of us sitting around a, a table, and one of the pastors who's been a pastor, I'd say at least 20 years, um, was sharing, and he said, you know... Um, when I was younger and I was serving the church, I, I 
I, I, on the outside, I, I was serving the church. But looking back, I realized I was serving myself. I was using the church in order to make a name for myself. And he shared that to all everybody sitting there, with which, which, which was humility, which I appreciated. And it also encouraged me in this because it showed me that he was growing in maturity. There's things that you think today, if we continue to grow in, in maturity in Christ, we're going to look back and go, oh, Lord, I didn't realize I was doing that. It shows his patience, his kindness to us when we're, when we're not in the place that we should be. And that should, should help us to be encouraged to move forward. It also should help us to be patient with one another, right? We're all in different levels of, of maturity. So there's a negative, don't do this. And then there's a positive, do this. Count others more significant than yourselves. Apparently, that's not what Euodia and Syntyche were doing. Um, but what does that mean? What does that mean to count others more significant than yourselves? I like what John Piper uh, says. He, he said that when he was growing up, he read, uh, this was read to him in the King James Version, which it actually says, count others better than yourselves. And he was like, as a child, he was like, well, what if they're not better than me? Like, what if I'm smarter than my sister? Am I supposed to go, you're better than me? You're, you're smarter than me? Or if I have a, a better skill, am I supposed to pretend? Or we're just supposed to pretend that we're, you know, oh, I can't do anything. I'm no good. That's not what it's talking about. But even in, in the translation we have, what does it mean to be, to consider, to count others more significant than yourselves? Let me ask you this. Are you, are you more significant than me? Y'all don't want to answer that one, do you? Am I more significant than you? No. Do we sometimes act like we're more significant than each other? We do. That's our natural bent. But the gospel, the good gospel, teaches us, no, you're equal. You're all equal. You all needed a Savior. Christ died for all. So, so there's, this, there's this, this level of what does it mean to be uh, count others more significant when we're not? Well, here's the definition I want to give. Counting others more significant than ourselves mean, means that we regard one another as being worthy of being served. We regard one another as being worthy to be served even when we're not. Even when we're not living a life that you would say, you're worthy of me serving you. Me counting you more worthy or you counting me more worthy, more significant than others is when you say, you know what, I'm going to, Serve him anyway. I'm going to love him anyway. Isn't that what Christ did for us? This is the gospel right here. And there's this connector in here that connects it all together. It says, in humility. The word humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Now, what does it mean? What does humility mean? Because that's a word that could mean a lot of different things. Well, uh, Pastor Tim Keller Lee's paying attention now. <laughs> he says this, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. I think that's an okay definition. I think that's a good definition. Don't y'all think that's a good definition? Now, this isn't scripture, so I'm going to add to it, okay? I'm going to add to it. I've been thinking about this. This is a good definition, but I've got a definition I want to add to it. It says this, humility is not just thinking 
of yourself less is thinking more of God and of others than yourself. You know, when we get caught up in, if you think, I'm, 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 I'm going to think about myself less, I'm going to think about myself less, who are you thinking about? Yourself more. It's like uh, I had a psychology professor one time say, uh, I don't want anyone in here to think about white polar bears. Do not think about white polar bears. How's the way to not think about white polar bears? Think about black bears. Think about something else. So it's not enough just to say, I'm just not going to think about myself. It's to, it's to do something. Put off, put on. I'm going to think more about God, about his will, about his purposes. I'm going to think about my brother. I'm going to think about my sister more than I'm going to think about myself. He goes on, Paul says in verse 4 in Philippians chapter 2, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We can have unity without uniformity, but it will require that we humble ourselves and have humility. And you know, walking in the mind of Christ is easy for me to preach about. I love preaching about this. This is so fun to preach about, walking in the mind of Christ, but you know what? It's impossible for me to live it out in my life, to truly live this out in my own strength. And so as we're seeking to grow in fellowship with one another, uh, I want to make sure, I'm going to give you three things as I'm closing here. I want to give you three things that I want us to make sure that we're not doing in the wrong order. Now, we need to do all these things, but not in the wrong order. So here's the first thing. Number one, when we're seeking to grow in fellowship with one another, don't begin with committing yourself to the church. That is not where you want to begin. That is a dangerous place. Don't put your faith in the church. Why? Because we know what it's supposed to be and what it actually is. If you put your faith in the church, you're going to be disappointed, okay? You're good. Um, man, I don't know how many times in, in my early walk in Christ, I was like, man, I finally found the church that's doing it right. And I get in, I'm excited. I love the preaching. I love the people. Then I, you know, we start walking side by side. I'm like, wait, they're just like me. They have problems. They, they need a savior just like me. That's what happens when you get into the church, okay? So do not put your faith in the church. Do not put your faith in Reach Life Church. I promise you, we will disappoint you. I promise you, uh, I will make sure that happens. All right, number two, don't begin with committing yourself to God. Did I get your attention? Don't start with committing yourself to God. God, I'm coming to you. And I'm offering myself as a living sacrifice, and I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to do big things for you, God. I'm going to do great things for you, God. I've, this is my testimony of my life. and I, Man, I, what am I going to do for God? I mean, what? let me ask you this. What can you do that's big to someone who created the heavens and the earth by just speaking? He said, you know, I don't need anything from you. I mean, I don't know if they said it that way, but God's like, I don't need anything from you. I created you. I brought you into existence out of nothing. What big things can you do for God? Okay, now does it mean we shouldn't commit ourselves to God or commit ourselves to the church? We do talk about covenanting. Yes, but that's not the order that it should happen. Here's what, number three, here's, what, here's where it should start. Begin with seeking to understand how much Jesus committed himself to God and us. This is, listen, church, this is so 
crucial to everything I am sharing this morning, that if we don't start here, we are going not going to have the proper motivation to continue on and to persevere in the, in, in the church and serving God. We need to look at how Jesus regarded God, the Father, and us as more significant than himself. What are the two greatest commandments that Jesus said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He did that perfectly. All the time, he did that. And what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. He actually went above that. He loved his neighbor above himself. He put us. And the, and the crazy thing about that is, is that we didn't want it initially. Sometimes we still don't, and we have to repent. Look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Paul's continuing. He's continuing in the mind. Have the, mind, have the same mind and have this mind. He's going to show us what that mind is. Now, the word this, I think it's pointing back and forward. It's pointing to what he's already said to count others more significant than yourselves. And now he's going to show you this is how Christ specifically did it for us. He's not leaving uh, the mind of Christ open to, to, to speculation or some type of mystic um, view that we're going to have the mind of Christ. Here's what it is. Verse 6, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was also in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, but he emptied himself. In other words, uh, Jesus, when we say he emptied himself, that's, a, that's something people debate. What does that mean, that he emptied himself? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that he gave up his divine attributes. It does not mean that he ceased to be God or that he became a lesser God for just a little bit. No, he was fully God when he was walking on, the, on earth. He took on flesh. But though he was God, he did not strut around amongst us and say, you treat me like I'm God. I'm equal to God, so you treat me. He did not require that. But it says he emptied himself. How? Well, it tells us in, uh, in the, the rest of verse 7, by taking the form of a servant. It's, it's not like some mystic thing. It, mystic thing that we have to, what does he mean by that? Empty, emptying means that he became a servant and he served us. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's that word humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. True humility, if you really want to know if you're being truly humble, are you being obedient? Are you obeying God? You're putting his will above yours. Are we serving one another? That's true humility. He thought more of the Father's will than his own. Not my will, but thine be done. And he thought more of us than himself. And he died not for his benefit, but for the benefit of his brothers and sisters. So what I want us to see here is that that was the mind of Christ. That is the mind of Christ today. Do you know that Christ is still serving us today? It's not, he's not dying again. That's been done. But he still serves us today. And he is going to serve. This is, what, this is crazy. He is going to serve us in eternity. Um, he says in Luke 12, 37, It will be good for those servants whose master 
finds them watching when he comes. He's talking about his return. He says, it's going to be good for those who have been serving me and watching for me when I'm coming back. Truly, I tell you, he will, speaking of himself, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. He is going, that, he is going to be serving in eternity. Why? Because the mind of Christ is humble service. That is the mind of Christ, even in his kingdom. And so do you see why it's so important that we start at the foot of the cross when we're looking at how are we going to to be in fellowship with one another? We have to first and see, look and be reminded of what Christ did for us, for, for an undeserving church. And when we get it, when I get that, and we, we were talking about this in staff meeting this week. We were going over this passage. And there's, when, when you get it, there's just this awe. There's this worship like, this is not right. It shouldn't be like this. This is not how we are. But it's true. It's amazing grace. How the Lord <laughs> loves a people who didn't love him. And yet he kept pursuing us. And he won us by what he did for us, proving it. And after that happens, what happens? Man, I want to turn around and serve you. And in the same way, you want to serve me. It's a mutual submission to one another. And it's beautiful, but it doesn't just happen by accident, does it? And we need to mature and grow in this. And um, to me, that's, that's an encouraging thing. Uh, you may look at our church. You may have a beef with somebody in this church this morning. Uh, I want to encourage you, if you do, ask yourself, is it a gospel issue? Um, if it is, then um, let's talk about it. Let's, what, what's the issue? If it's not, could it be that you have forgotten how Christ has served you and you're not walking in the mind of Christ? This is, this is going to happen in our church. I, I'm not going to say I hope it happens, but I know it will happen if we walk in unified community together. It will happen. But we, it's not without hope. We have the way to stay together, and that is the mind of Christ. And I want to just close with the words of, of uh, Paul. This is also from Philippians. I've read it already, but I'm going to read it again. Uh, Philippians 3.12, and, and then we're going to close on this. Not that we have already obtained this. Everything I've just shared, it's not that we've obtained this or have already arrived at our, our, our goal. But let us press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of us. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, who are mature should take such a view of, of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear. I love verse 16. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let's move forward, not backwards. Wherever God has, has you, let's move forward. And the way that you move forward is to understand once again, what has Christ done for you?